so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 89 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about how men suck and they're responsible for all the bad in the world. And women are awesome, except for the women that suck, because sometimes that happens, too. I'm Karen Peterson. With me, as always, is Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. And a few people said you've missed her a little bit, I guess. So um, she's back with us today. Say hi to Kristen Lopez. Hi, everybody. Kristen. Yes. Where have you been, lady? What you been up to these low these many months very busy. <laughs> Just uh, writing a lot of stuff and seeing a lot of movies and celebrating my birthday and yay! I wish it was. I wish it sounded crazier, but it, it's actually not. <laughs> well, I think you're underselling it a little bit. You've been doing some big interviews with people that you love. You've been hanging out at movie studios. I mean, you've been doing some stuff. I have. I wish it paid more, but I have been doing all those things. <laughs> well, we always wish uh, everything paid more. So. <laughs> yes, don't we all? Yeah. Lauren, how are you? I am good. I am tired. I was at an IFC screening a couple nights ago that I still have not totally recovered from. So. Ooh, that sounds <laughs> intriguing. It was great. Went to see Polyester um, with an introduction by John Waters, which is awesome. Ooh. And he is just like, he is exactly the way that he is in interviews. And I knew he would be, but I was just like, he is, he's just John Waters. That's what he is. Uh, and he gave a great introduction to it. And But the film ran very late. I, we didn't get back until about um, 1 a.m. And I was still amazed. This this just says how old I am. Uh, I still have not like totally regained all of my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you innocent, innocent child. Just wait. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be 33 this month like i'm getting Aww. so old so oh, that's so cute that's so adorable i didn't i'm officially younger than lauren i didn't know that yeah i think well you're, you're 1988 right? either, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, something new. I thought lauren and i were the same age i'm 1986 so oh, late okay. 1986 so, i mean but yeah i think because you're born in september so we we are almost yeah. exactly two years apart yeah, that is new information, the more you know. <laughs> when when I was born, Jimmy Carter was president. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Karen. <laughs> I'm young at heart, and I will stick to it. Well, we, anyway. we know you are. <laughs> You're the resident well, Gen that... Xer. You're the resident Gen Xer. Like, the two of us are millennials. It's true. Although, it's funny because... The, like when I first heard the term um, Xennial with the X I was yeah. just like 
I was like, that's a stupid term. And then I started reading about it, and I was like, actually, this really fits me. Because there's a lot of stuff that gets blamed on Gen Xers that I'm like, that's not really me. And that wasn't my experience because I was toward the end of it. Um, but I'm definitely not a millennial either. But I really do fit into that, like, in-between generation. So, yeah. I, uh, my my former roommate is about your age, I think. And he, he said the same thing, where it was like... He felt more, he didn't really identify with Gen X, but he wasn't, he was a little bit older than millennials. So, so like, 9-11 happened when he was in college. 9-11 happened when I was a sophomore in high school. And that yeah. kind of experience was one of the major incidents, but we were, we were coming at it from totally different perspectives, basically, because of where we were at in life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, well, we've got some cool stuff to talk about and some just like what the fuck stuff to talk about um <laughs> as always uh so let's see there was something that popped up on twitter this week that i just thought was just an interesting place to start ross miller who is the king of terrible puns on twitter and sometimes his puns are so bad i want to unfollow him but then he says other interesting stuff and i'm like all right fine i'll keep you around whatever uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, earlier this week, and he's at Ross T. Miller, by the way. Who do you think are the biggest Hollywood box office acting draws of our time? Who was able to draw in big audiences purely by them being in the film? And he does have a related question, but we're going to just start there. Just off the top of your heads, who would you guys say would be some of the biggest box office draws? Uh. Like, I remember when I was a uh, well, not necessarily a kid, but when I was younger, I remember there was this article about this exact thing. It was like the the Boys of Summer, and it was talking about Will Smith and Tom Cruise, yeah. and um, I'm trying to remember who else was on that list. Just people that could, you knew, oh, Tom Hanks, I think, Julia Roberts, like, you knew that if their name was attached to that movie, people were going to show up. And who is that now? Do we have that now? I would imagine that actually some of those guys are still there and I am saying this without any statistics in front of me so there's a good chance that I'm about to be proven wrong um, but people like Tom Hanks I think are still very big draws um, in terms of the younger generation uh, Chris Hemsworth maybe um, Robert Downey Jr uh, but then but then you begin getting into the argument of like is it the film or is it the star yeah right? you're, you're exactly what I was going to say, which is I, I was going to say Robert Downey Jr. immediately, and then I realized I think Robert Downey Jr.'s made movies in between Avengers films that have not been proven to be box office, you know, successes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I, I honestly think that we're at the point now where box office draw isn't necessarily a person, it's a franchise or a theme or something. That is mostly, yeah, that is mostly true. But here's what I did. Um, I went to, first of all, I looked at, because I, I actually did a little bit of research for this because I was curious. And I think that this is an answerable question. But I started with Avengers Endgame, which is, of course, now the biggest movie of all time. And I started going through the cast of that. And Robert Downey Jr., he has done some really very big movies but in the last five or no last eight years nothing he's done has been a non-marvel movie except for mm -hmm. the judge which didn't make any money 
And so then I started going down the list. Chris Hemsworth has been in a bunch of stuff, but nothing has really made a lot outside of Avengers. And then also he did Ghostbusters, which did well. I don't care what people say. It, made, it did fine. <laughs> it did you know? fine. Yeah. It did. It was not a disaster. Like people tried to convince themselves that it was. And uh, let's see. So going down the list, I eventually came to... So here's what I did. I looked for which actors have been in movies where that made over $100 million and how many have they been in in the last 10 years that were not Avengers movies. And um, because I think the Avengers, like the whole MCU, I think that that's just in this weird class by itself where it's like everybody that's in it defies... Or I mean, the the studio, it doesn't matter who's in these movies necessarily. Uh, and the answer that I came up with was Bradley Cooper. Oh my god. I know. Uh, since 2009, he did... Let's see. These are all his movies that made over $100 million since 2009. The Hangover. Valentine's Day. Uh, <laughs> the Hangover Part 2. <laughs> Silver Linings Playbook. The Hangover Part 3. American Hustle. American Sniper. And A Star is Born. And, and The Mule. Huh. So and so, what I thought was interesting about that was specifically the fact that like the Mule is not a franchise film, although that's a Clint Eastwood movie. But I think a lot of people, a lot more people, went to see that for him than for Clint Eastwood. Um, a Star Is Born is definitely that's Bradley Cooper's name all over it. Um, American Sniper, he's the star of that movie. Mm-hmm. American Hustle, he it is an ensemble, but he's a really big part of it. And then the Hangover movies, of course, that's a a franchise but you know he's one of the the main guys and then also Silver Lang's playbook it's all about him so it's really interesting now a couple people replied to this tweet by saying Leonardo DiCaprio and they were totally convinced like it's only Leonardo DiCaprio and no one else so I said okay well let's look at how Leo has done and uh wait before I do that that's one two Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for Bradley Cooper in the last ten years. For Leo, he's had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Revenant, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Great Gatsby, Django Unchained. So in the last five years, it's definitely him. But before that, then it's Inception. And Shutter Island. So he's had seven in ten years. But if you look at recency, I think that he and Bradley Cooper are, pre- are running pretty evenly. So, well, and actually, Bradley Cooper is is interesting that because a lot of DiCaprio's films you're talking about are either with Tarantino or Scorsese, um, both of right. whom really like him. And so there's an ad there's an added element of the director as star. So you know, I I mean, for me personally, I will see just about anything Martin Scorsese does. Um, and honestly, I'm not a big fan of DiCaprio. I often go see Martin Scorsese films in spite of Leo's presence. Um, <laughs> yeah. And but so then you've got that folded into it. So how much of that is DiCaprio himself as the draw, and how much of it is the director as the draw? Because there are, there are a number of people that. Same thing with Tarantino. Um, if Tarantino does a film, you're going to go see it. It doesn't matter if 
Leonardo DiCaprio is in it or not, although it might be an added bonus or an added attraction to it. Yeah, it does seem like we're almost moving away from this whole star-powered box office in the same way, uh, which has interesting implications for the future. Yeah, well, it really does. To go off of what Lauren was saying and, and the Cooper stuff, it almost feels like Bradley Cooper is just really adept at knowing what audiences gravitate to. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the films that Karen referenced, Star is Born is a musical with probably the biggest pop star that we have. Yeah. Um, American Sniper, certainly hearkening to that, you know, jingoistic, patriotic, uh, white male uh, at the right time, the year it came out. And even even his work with Russell. I mean, David O. Russell is still one of those entities that it's, it feels very odd to say that I think a lot of the, his movies work because of his name on the marquee alongside Bradley Cooper. They're kind of becoming this weird Scorsese, DiCaprio team, although not nearly on the same, same level. Um, so I, it almost seems just like Cooper's really, really adept at figuring out what people want just working in those genres mm-hmm. yeah yeah i yes i i agree with you i i think that cooper may maybe you know and in some ways i find cooper very bland as an actor and i think a lot of people do but you're right he's very smart and he is he's behaving intelligently in terms of his career and in terms of the kinds of films that he's making and and he's going to keep on doing it. I mean, I'm certain that whatever I don't I don't know if he has a project in the works as a director right now, but I am certain that whatever he does next, people are going to gravitate towards um, because of A Star Is Born because that was such a major film and and got so many fans, etc. So I don't know. It's it's it is interesting. I would be interested to know like people like Tom Hanks or Meryl Streep or. Um, uh, there was another one that was mentioned. Well, it's someone like George Clooney who who hasn't worked in years or who does very little, but was still, you know, a huge box office draw for the past, you know, for the if you look over maybe the course of 20 years. Um, but Hollywood has changed a great deal over, the, over that time period. And there are some actors that were major stars that simply have, have more or less left the limelight or just aren't getting the parts anymore, just aren't interested anymore. Um, to answer your question, Meryl Streep has four, uh, over 100 million. Okay. (laughs) And, um, Tom Hanks, it was, I think it was also four. Let me see. Uh, yeah, let's see. He had, he had, so he had Toy Story four. He had Sully. He had Captain Phillips and Toy Story three and Angels and Demons. So he had five since 2009 huh and, and and some of those are the toy story films right which Another are their own one that yeah and even though he's probably the biggest part of the toy story films they would still draw a lot of people out if he wasn't there anymore yeah it's not tom, tom Hanks. the voice of tom hanks is you know he, he's very good in them and he does a good voice work but the voice of tom hanks is not the draw for those films um right Right. And then I also looked at Tom Cruise, because of course I did. And uh, he has, in the last 10 years, he's done three Mission Impossible movies, which all made over 
well, Rogue Nation actually was just under, but they basically were right around 200 million. Um, and he had Edge of Tomorrow, which was 100 million. So he's only had four that are 100 million plus. So it's it's really interesting. And but it but it's like I think our I think our view of what box office success means needs to shift as well, though, because and this, I'm not making excuses for anybody that we've talked about. Obviously, Bradley Cooper and Leonardo DiCaprio are figuring it out. But um, but I, I think with so many movies being released now, with movies getting less time in the theater, with so much more going to streaming, it's getting really difficult to quantify what really truly is going to draw in or who really is going to draw in an audience and but I do think that what what you guys have been saying too I think that we're so much more interested in the story and the craft of the film than necessarily the name on the top of the poster yeah we're we're almost it sounds like in some ways that we're actually moving towards towards a post star uh generation where it's no longer about the the particular people that are in it. And I'm not saying that, like, Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Tony Stark is an important part of that franchise, particularly when, you, when you're when you talking about the first Iron Man film. I mean, he kind of launched the MCU in that sense, because it worked. Yeah. Um, right. and, and all of the people who are in that play their characters very well, but the draw is not really them. It is now, at least, it is the MCU. And, you know, you, you kind of ask the question, like, Tom Holland is really good as Spider-Man. Would the Spider-Man films not be doing as well if you simply had a different actor in that part? I don't know. I, I actually think that they would be probably on par. So it isn't him, per se, that is making people go like, you know, oh, I have to go see the latest Spider-Man. It's the fact that it's Spider-Man and it's the fact that it's part of the MCU. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, all right. But it's really fun to talk about and, and consider and, and think about. I wish that there were more women in this conversation, but we all know that. <laughs> That's every time we talk about anything in Hollywood. <laughs> yep. Why aren't so... there more women? <laughs> Why aren't there more women in Hollywood? We should just be I running this town. listen to every, every episode of this podcast. <laughs> I think well, I mean, I know that. really why, but I mean, when women are in charge of stuff, they get things done. So it's more of a, it's more of a philosophical, like, why haven't we gotten past this? If, if men really do just care about money, they really should just put women in charge of everything. But, but they whatever. wouldn't be in charge. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, speaking of women in Hollywood and um, something really frustrating that happened this week, Crazy Rich Asians co-writer Adele Lim, who co-wrote the first Crazy Rich Asians, and that made, like, what, $250 million at the box office, she has quit the sequel. She's not going to be co-writing the sequel anymore. And this news came from The Hollywood Reporter. Basically what happened was, after the first movie was so successful, and everyone was super excited. I mean, I think they greenlit the sequel opening weekend or something. It was really fast. But uh, she co-wrote the movie with um, Peter Shirelli. And now working on the sequel, they're... Well, they haven't started writing it yet, but they've been negotiating contracts. 
And they offered him about $900,000 to write Crazy Rich Asians 2. And they offered her about $100,000. And she said no. And Peter Shirelli, to his credit, was like, well, I'll split my fee with you. And she said, well, you shouldn't have to do that. They should just be paying me what I'm worth. Yeah. And, in fact, I'm looking for the exact quote. She, uh... She said, Peter has been nothing but incredibly gracious, but what I make shouldn't be dependent on the generosity of the white guy writer. If I couldn't get pay equity for after Crazy Rich Asians, I can't imagine what it would be like for anyone else, given that the standard for how much you're worth is having established quotes from previous movies, which women of color would never have been hired for. There's no realistic way to achieve true equity that way. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that... Uh that he actually offered to split the fee because there, yeah. there was this point where I was just like, well, fuck him. Then it's just like, okay, no, not fuck him. Like he, he was actually like, no, she, she needs to be paid properly. And, you know, and he was, he was trying to arrange that. But, um, so it's good to hear that like a male writer was actually like, no, this is bullshit. Um, although I would actually like if he may kind of made a stand and said like, I'm not writing it without her. I think that would be an interesting, uh, element added element and certainly we get more publicity or something like that but it's it's fucking ridiculous it's fucking ridiculous that this is even a conversation this is one of the most successful um films of the past few years it is one of the most successful romantic comedies certainly at the box office in like years and you can't even pay a proper rate to your female person of color writer like, for fuck's sake, guys. It's not that hard. They have the money. Well, I was going to say, and the movie, I mean, so much of that film's success was dependent on knowing that there was an Asian writer in some capacity. I yeah. mean, the Mahjong sequence, which was not in the novel that was written for the film, would not have worked out if you had a white guy who didn't know dick about Mahjong. Um, I know I couldn't have written that scene because I don't know anything about Mahjong. So... I mean, the elements that people love that made it special were those influences from Adele Wim's experiences and, and what she knew from being a, a minority writer. And I feel like it really sets this movie on a bad footing when it comes out and people are like, oh yeah, it's, direct, it's written by a white guy. Great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was just, I was just going to agree with Kristen. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's like there there's an in there's an insider feeling to the film that it's it's not about it is not a white mainstream looking at um, Chinese culture. It is Chinese culture looking at itself to a certain degree. Chinese American culture looking at itself, and that makes a difference. That perspective perspective does matter and that perspective makes a difference as you're saying in the mahjong scene but i think probably across the board i cannot imagine that film being properly written by a white guy no matter how conversant he is in uh in the culture that he's writing about because he's come he's still going to be coming at it from a very outsider perspective so you need that extra perspective that input of someone who actually you know exists as a not white guy in this world. Mm -hmm. What I find very troubling and frustrating even more, I mean, all of this is frustrating, 
But just two weeks ago at D23, Adele Lim was announced as one of the co-writers for, or maybe the writer, for Raya and the Last Dragon, which is a big Disney animated film that's coming out next next year, the year after. Next and, Thanksgiving. Yeah. And so she's, one, she's writing that film. She's writing a huge Disney film, and she can't get more than $100,000 for the Crazy Rich Asians sequel that she helped make so popular in the first place. It does not make sense. And I would personally like to know where John Chu stands on all of this, the director of Crazy Rich Asians, who is returning for the sequel too. Like, where is he in all this? Why isn't he backing well, up his writer? Well, I think it was great that Nina Metz um, of the Chicago Tribune did a thread about the whole thing uh, a couple days ago, and we've talked on this show numerous times about white men failing upward. And she laid out that it's not even a matter of quality work. It's this bastardized concept of seniority and paying your dues. Because she was talking about how Peter Chiarelli's first screenplay was for The Proposal, which had a 44% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but it made $317 million worldwide. It was the, the 20th highest grossing film of, of that year. And then his next credit was a story by credit for the sequel to Now You See Me. And she was pretty much saying his, I'll direct quote it, his credits at this point were two mediocre movies that did well at the box office. And his next credit was Crazy Rich Asians. And that just baffles my mind that you can be a, a white guy and make two mediocre movies by, I mean, mind you, by critical consensus, not necessarily box office. But just because you've made two movies that made some money, you're immediately offered a million dollars. And I think that's what a lot of Hollywood people were saying when the story came out. Industry standard. It, oh, it's the industry standard. No, fuck you. We're at a time right now where we've proven that industry standard, whether it's harassing your employees or paying them, is, should be out the window. We should move, move beyond industry standard at this point and pay people what they're worth, what they're contributing. Well, and there's this weird idea, too, though, that Adele Lim hasn't paid her dues. No, she yeah. hasn't written a bunch of feature films, but she's been working in television for years. Mm -hmm. So it's like she's got a lot of experience. She knows what she's doing. She knows how to write, clearly. And the idea that that's not enough to bump up her rate, that's ridiculous. Well, it, it's uh, the whole thing I always have with, like, co-writing credit. You know, I think this proves it is that co-writing, as we all know, as you know, people who studied the English language, means cooperation, collaboration. They worked on it together. There is this equality already to them as co-writers. So in the spirit of co-writing, you would think they would get co-same rate. You know, yeah. like, yeah. it pretty much just says, are we going to sit down with the script and say how much Peter Chiarelli contributed versus... Oh, this is an Adele section. This is a Peter section. Like, really? We're going to do that? No, you guys got a co-writing. This isn't a story by, this isn't a screenplay by, this is co. So it should be co at that point. And the fact that we're still throwing that word out and just purely putting it on race and I mean, it proves it's on race and gender. Yeah. and Well, and I think that what you're talking about, Kristen, is exactly what, what Lynn was pointing out, was that she the the door is already shut to a certain degree so like he has he has done as you're saying a couple of mediocre films that did not get great critical reviews but did well and so he is considered to be a 
more valuable, right, in a monetary sense than she is. And that's something that she, because of the way that Hollywood works and because of the racism and the sexism of Hollywood, it is that much harder for someone like her to break through that. To You know, she could not have done two mediocre films because she would have been locked out earlier than that. And that that's part of what is going on is that the the women of color, women in general, people of color in general, are getting closed out of these spaces much, much earlier than mediocre white men are. And that's not the fault of the mediocre white men. It's not Peter Torelli's fault that, like, the, that this is the way the industry works or something like that, but he is benefiting from it. And Warner Brothers, I think it's Warner Brothers, is continuing to kind of reinforce it. So, yeah, they the, this can't go on. <laughs> so that's all I gotta no. say. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of Asian women in Hollywood, uh, Scarlett Johansson this week. <laughs> that joke's never going to get old. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, no. So Scarlett Johansson is in hot water again, as she should always be. Uh, this week, she once again decided to, you know, there's the Oscars are starting up. So she's got to remind people that she kind of sucks. And she did that this week by letting people know that she thinks Woody Allen's a stand-up guy and she would totally work with him again. So that's awesome. Uh, she she says, yeah, let's see. How do I feel about Woody Allen? Johansson lets the question hang for a moment. Ever since the Me Too movement caused Dylan Farrow's sexual abuse allegations against her father to be re-examined, much of Hollywood has distanced itself from Allen. The filmmaker long has denied the claims of any actors who have worked with him, blah, blah, blah. She says, I love Woody. I believe him and I would work with him anytime. Well, maybe soon that's all you're going to have. So there you go. She is about to be in Jojo Rabbit and uh, Marriage Story. Those are her two big movies this year. And then she also has Black Widow coming out next May. What were your guys' thoughts when you were reminded once again that Scarlett Johansson doesn't have a filter? Uh, oh my god. You know, Scarlett Johansson, I think a number of people said this, uh, Scarlett Johansson, I like her. I like her in films. Like, I think she's a good actress, generally. I enjoy her performances. She keeps on making it really hard to do that. I wish that she would just shut up and, like... You know, we, we've talked about how how men just need to not talk. She needs to not talk sometimes. Because then we could enjoy her films and not think about these things. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting, though, in the, the Hollywood Reporter story is that she talks about, um, like, James Franco and her involvement with Me Too and Time's Up and those campaigns and everything. So it does seem like she's one of those people that she is not okay about certain things, but when it comes to someone that she has worked with and that I absolutely believe that she has had good experiences with Woody Allen. Um, I don't think that like he's harassed her. I don't, I'm, I'm certain that he's been a very wonderful director for her and that she, she likes him and that she has worked with him numerous times. Um, but she seems to be like, well, because he's been nice to me and because I like him, he cannot possibly have done these horrible things that he's accused of, very credibly accused of. And I think it should be mentioned that I don't think he's ever been accused of harassing his actresses. Um, he has been accused of, of assaulting a child. That's something that it, that 
and it seems to be a very uh, reasonable and real accusation that this is not something that someone has made up. Um, and his defenses always come around to, well, uh, no actresses have ever complained about me. It's just like, well, the issue isn't your relationship with your actresses. Right. And this As well, I was just going to say, this whole thing with her, it just reminds me once again that someone needs to be telling these actors that it's okay sometimes to just decline to answer a question. Well, and I always throw out, this is my, this is always my thing. Okay, ScarJo really wants us to believe that she trusts Woody Allen. Take a picture of him babysitting your children. That's, that's where I'm at right now, because I guarantee you she wouldn't. Okay, or maybe she would because she's just that type of person. Um, but I, I think the problem that I have with this specific interview is that in prior interviews where she's been asked about him, she's always said, you know, I would work with him again. I like him. That's where the extent of it is kind of gone. And this is, I think, the first interview that I can recall where she said, no, I actually believe him. I don't believe Dylan Farrow, I believe him. And that's a real slap in the face from a hypocritical white girl who wants to talk out of both sides of her mouth and say, oh yeah, I support women, fuck James Franco. But also, hi there, credible female victim who was seven years old when you were assaulted. Um, you can go fuck yourself. I don't actually believe you. So I have a real issue with that. That's the thing that bothers me the most about this is that she's openly now just doubling down and saying, no, no, I don't believe her at all. And I mean, other women have have also supported Woody Allen, and I'm sure somebody can send me a shitty tweet about about this woman also said that she didn't believe uh, Dylan Farrow, but I, I'm not recalling Diane Keaton explicitly saying, I don't believe her, or, or any of the other actresses saying, I didn't believe the victim. Um, so that's the part that, that always just just threw it over the edge where we just like wow scarlett johansson wants us to go see black widow and by the way i don't believe rape victims yeah it, it's i i think that 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 does go back to the sense of like it's it's about people it's about the fact that she likes him she likes him she likes working with him she has liked being an actress on set with him they probably get along really well, which is a totally real thing. And I, I think that we've talked about it just in terms of the way that women relate to, to abusive men in their own lives, that, you know, you, you don't want to believe that about your friend. And I understand that impulse, but the point is that your friendship has to take second place to the belief of victims and credible accusations about assault and rape, etc. So do you... I mean, I would. I don't want to believe it about Woody Allen because I like a lot of his films, and that would kind of remove some of my bad feelings about liking them. But I do believe Dylan Farrow, and I don't think that there's any way that we can that you know you can simply push that to the side and be like, oh, I'm just going to choose that this particular victim is wrong at some level. Yeah, exactly. It's. It's 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 really troubling. I do I do want to say that I am getting a little tired of this kind of thing being trotted out every time an actress who has worked with Woody Allen has a new movie coming out where 
they are always asked, and it sounds like in the, the THR article doesn't make it incredibly clear whether she just volunteered this information or if she was actually asked directly about it. But I am getting a little bit tired of actresses specifically being asked about their work with Alan when we've got a lot of very famous, very popular male actors who doesn't seem that they've ever, you know, sometimes they're asked about, sometimes they volunteer information. I think that, uh, uh, Kristen, you said that John Bernthal um, did volunteer his his feelings about it. He was asked about it. And he was he asked? Answered very, yeah, he was asked about it and answered very honestly. Well, and that's good, and I'm, I'm glad to see that, but, like, you know, I... There, there's a whole list. Colin Firth, for God's sake, has worked with Woody Allen. Okay, can we c- talk to Colin Firth about why he worked with Woody Allen and what his feelings are about about it now? We seem to hear about it uh, when it surrounds people like Scarlett Johansson or um, Sally Hawkins, etc., but not so much the men. Well, you also yeah. mentioned, too, that you it's the concept of every time a woman has a movie out. So yeah. every time Scarlett Johansson has. So, you know, I've Again, my, my John Bernthal research, uh, he's only been asked once that I could find. Uh, you know, I'm sure Timothy Chalamet will be asked once. I, but with women, it's every single time they have a movie out. Yeah. And, and there, so there, I think there's an extra amount of pressure going on um, when it comes to these actresses that they have to address the fact that they've worked with a, a known abuser. Um, and the, and the same thing has been done around Roman Polanski. Kate Winslet has been asked numerous times about Roman Polanski, and she's given some similar problematic responses. Um, but fucking Christoph Waltz has worked with him. Adrian Brody has worked with him. Uh, Pierce Brosnan and Ewan McGregor, you know, are there, is someone going to bring up Ghostwriter when Ewan McGregor begins, uh, doing his press tours for Dr. Sleep? You know, that's what I want to see. If, if we actually have parity with these actors being put on the spot in the same way. Um, and some of them are going to stick their feet in their mouths, just like Scarlett Johansson has. But I think that there, there is an element of sexism that women have to constantly disown abusers that they have worked with. And male actors simply don't have to do it in the same way. And that's why I say, like, someone needs to tell these women... Well, anybody, really. You don't have to answer all these questions. Like, Scarlett Johansson needs someone next to her saying, you know what, the next time someone asks you about Woody Allen, just decline the answer. Just say, I've already said everything I have to say about this. I'm done. Mm -hmm. And eventually people will stop asking. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm happy about her answer, but I do think that it's time to stop asking her the question. It, It really does just feel like an easy gotcha. And... Unfortunately, she is someone that keeps sticking her foot in her mouth, but not just about this, about a lot of other things that I think are more interesting to talk about at this point. Because as far as I know, she doesn't have anything coming up with Woody Allen in the near future. So it's like, if she signs on to another movie, then it's worth bringing up again, maybe. But until then, let's just talk about her wanting to play everybody that's not a white woman. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing. I think that's why people are latching on to this again, because because she has such such a track record now <laughs> yeah. of just every single time. It's just like, oh, I should be allowed to play whatever I want to. It doesn't matter that I'm a white woman. It's just like, that's not that's not how it, it works, dear. And then you get the exchange going. But that that's the other side of it, is that a lot of these questions really are at, at base. They're getting clicks. They're getting attention. So, mm-hmm. you know, and we've talked about this before, about 
you know, we're, you're kind of, we in a sense are, but just by talking about it, are kind of promoting um, this kind of questioning of actresses like this because immediately everyone's like, oh, Scarlett Johansson is terrible, Scarlett Johansson is canceled, and everybody reads the THR article. Mm-hmm. But then she goes and does another movie and it, you know, gets people to watch it. I mean, it's funny, it goes in the shell is one of her uh, personal highest grossing movies uh, away <laughs> from the MCU in the last several years. <laughs> Even with all the controversy, so and with the bad reviews, it's bad movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about some good movies, which we didn't really prep for, but uh, it's Female Filmmaker Month, y'all. Yay! Yeah, we need like a wah cheer sound (laughs) effect. Maybe I'll add one in. but yeah, so it's Female Filmmaker Month, and it's a just a great month to celebrate women who have been making movies since the beginning of movies. This is not a recent thing. Women have literally been making movies since the beginning of the... way before there was even an industry. And um, so let's just chat about some of the ones that we like that we would recommend people watch this month. Lauren, what's one that you think... Maybe it's something current. Maybe it's something you just discovered on streaming. What's something that you think people should check out this month? Uh, well, I I always want to stand for Ida Lupino because, I, and I, I think that she's one of those, she's become better known actually over the past couple of years. And, you know, Kino is releasing a box set of her work. Um, most, not all, but most of her films are right now streaming on the Criterion channel through the end of the month. So go check them out. But she... She is a fascinating filmmaker just in her own right. And um, so many of her films, there's been some disagreement about how to interpret some of her films, but so many of her films really deal directly with women's issues, like abortion, like um, uh, bigamy, like marriage, uh, relationships. And then also, you know, one of her most famous films is an incredibly, quote, masculine movie, uh, The Hitchhiker, which is one of, probably one of the greatest film noirs ever made. Um, and But is a, she has a really fascinating camera eye. She has a really fascinating perspective on a lot of things. A lot of her films are very personal um, and applicable to her own feelings about, uh, about herself, about herself as an actress, about her position as a woman uh, in a very male-dominated industry. But she's one of those female directors that car... Like, almost like against all odds basically carved out a place for herself as a writer and as a director in an incredibly repressive society um in 1940s and 50s hollywood and i i think that we need to her films need to be watched on their own merits and there there isn't a single one i think that is a bad film and all of them are fascinating in their own ways like just the way that she uses the camera, the way that she uses the camera gaze, the stories that she tells, the complexity of some of the elements. I mean, this is someone, she she made a film called Outrage that is that deals directly with a woman's experience of rape and is the simply the sequence where she's kind of hunted down by this man is terrifying. It's And it's so feminine. It's so like, this is the terror that women feel. And some of it is just, this is the terror that women feel walking home alone at night. Um, and it's so incredibly emotional and so well done. And I, there is no way that a male director could have gotten 
the experience in the way that she gets it. So she really is a, a filmmaker that needs needs she deserves all of the attention that she's been getting and she needs continued attention. Well, I definitely plan on catching up with the Ida Lupino collection this month and that actually, you know, we're gonna just jump into a question that we got from Nanina Gilder, which is at Nanina Gilder. With Ida Lupino getting added to the Criterion channel, I'd love for you to talk about her of as director, but also, since I watched Never Fear, I've really been wondering about Kristen's feelings about its portrayal of disability. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that's a movie I saw a long time ago, and I have very little memory of it. So um, I don't know, necessarily know if I have any thoughts, because I don't remember the movie that well. Um, I remember liking it, but in terms of a deep dive onto its... Uh, look at disability i'd have to rewatch it again it's okay i think that it's worth rewatching. and kristen i would be interested to know what you thought about it because i i as a totally able-bodied person with no experience of this it's complicated and i think that's it's very much of its time period in a certain sense but it's also interesting because it's based off of lupino's own experience with polio um and her realization uh, in going through this and basically learning how to walk again, learning how to, um, learning how, and, and, sh and it happened, I believe, kind of at the height or nearing the height of her as an actress. And she realized that if she was unable to walk, basically, if she was unable to completely recover, essentially, from this disease, she would probably never work in Hollywood again. And that that all of her existence as an actress was based upon the fact of her appearance and and her ability, right? And so her ability to, to walk around, to do anything, and that she would not have a place. So that was when she began writing and began looking at other portions of the business that she could actually participate in that would not um, be as, as uh, would not put so much emphasis on her existence as an able-bodied person. Um, the film itself, I think, is fascinating uh, and probably places problematic because of the way that it treats, you know, what what is desirable in women, um, but is also very interesting for the time period that it's coming out in. I think it's like 1950, 1951, and it has a very different approach to a female experience of, again, the, the main character is a dancer and she, she contracts polio and she is unable to walk and a lot of it is about her the choices that she makes and her value her value of herself versus the way that society views her and values her because a lot of her devaluation of herself is about um is about herself and her own perceptions of what femininity is and what it looks like and not about you know whether or not her boyfriend still loves her or whether or not anyone else is supporting her sounds like a 1950s look at disability so yeah yeah those are probably yeah things i i probably noticed when i watched it but it, again it's just it's been so long i i i would really be fascinated i'm with nanina i would really be fascinated to know what you thought of it because it's it's just such a there's very few films that deal with that and it i don't think that it deals with yeah. it in a I don't think I think that it's much more contemplative than a lot of films treat 
the issue of disability, and particularly people that are able-bodied and that become disabled through a, a disease or through an accident. I will be watching it again just for you too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, there you go. <laughs> Kristen, do you have any particular film you would like to highlight for Female Filmmaker Month? Sure. Anytime there is a Female Filmmaker Month, I always have to throw out one of my favorite comedies that got no love when it came out in 2013, and that's upsetting to me because it's hilarious. Um, it's The To-Do List directed by Maggie Carey. Um, it, yeah, it kind of came out in 2013 with very little fanfare, and it's probably one of my favorite teen comedies. It's it's Aubrey Plaza plays a high school girl who's going to go to college, but she doesn't, she's a virgin, so she decides that she's going to make a to-do list of sex acts in order to become just as sexually experienced as she is intellectually. Um, and it ends up being a, a grander discussion about friendship and, you know, femininity and, and finding what makes you happy. Um, and I, I really appreciate it because I think too often virginity narratives for women tend to be either fairy tale or cautionary tale. And this is a movie that pretty much says like, no, you don't have to be in love with whoever you're with, um, just as long as, you know, you're you're consenting adults. It's really funny. Um, and it's, you know, a raunchy 80s-esque sex comedy, which is, again, a very male-dominated genre. And I love it so much. And it's streaming wherever you get movies. So take out $3.99 and rent it. Wow, I've never even nice. heard of this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it either. came and went with a whimper when it came out in 2013. I went and saw it in theaters. I own it. Uh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Hmm. Well, I will look for it then. Thank you. Um, there are two things I want to, I want to mention. One is, I guess, not technically a film, but first off, movies that are on Criterion, Seven Beauties is back on Criterion. Yay. If you have still not seen Lena Vertmuller's movie seven beauties the first movie that ever got a woman best director nomination at the oscars check it out it is so worth it so it's just it's there it just got added this week and then the other thing just because i was thinking about the fact that it's emmys month and uh when they see us is a limited series but it really is like a four-hour movie it's it's so well done it's so brilliant ava duvernay did this movie series whatever about the central park five which are now renamed redubbed the exonerated five because it's the five boys that back in uh 1989 i think they were wrongfully convicted of raping viciously raping a woman in central park it turned out they were completely innocent and this series really gets into the it really takes you through so much of their journey and what happened to these boys and it starts off the first episode it just it will make you so angry because it's just unthinkable how the police would just not listen to any reason not listen to any facts not listen to logic and would just settle on something that was so obviously wrong and convince themselves that they were doing the right thing and it's it's difficult to watch, but I was at an event for it several weeks ago, an Emmy event, because it's nominated for a bunch of Emmys. And uh, 
I think it was it was a moderator who was introducing this panel and he said if you think this is hard to watch just imagine what it was like to live through it and I was like you know what you're right <laughs> I can endure this just to understand a little bit more of their experience and what happened and it's absolutely worth your time it's on Netflix do yourself a favor and I mean you'll probably need to watch it in stages because it's a lot but it's so worth it and it's Ava DuVernay just keeps proving herself as a really, really talented, exceptional filmmaker of our time. And after you watch that, celebrate by watching A Wrinkle in Time and (laughs) kind of having a little bit of a, (laughs) you know, kind of just bring yourself back into a happy place after that. Yeah, exactly. There you go. (laughs) I I still have not watched when they see us and it's it's it is because of exactly what you're saying i'm like oh god i have to be in in the right place to watch this yeah this because i and it's long too that's the other thing if it was if it was a single film i think i might be i think i might be a little i'm a little bit more like okay i'm gonna do it but a, a whole limited series just and i'm really i want to watch it i want to see it but i'm also just like oh god i don't know if i can i don't know if i can handle it which i you know is probably testament to faith in ava duvernay so Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it and it is long, but I think that it really, it really needed to be because I guess that was one of the discussions that they were having early on was do we do this as a as a feature film, or do we do this as a long form something, you know, a little bit longer and more episodic, and ultimately they decided to do it episodically because there's so much to tell about what they went through and it's like the first episode gets into their arrest the second episode is the trial and then it gets into what was happening while they were actually in prison and then the aftermath when they were eventually exonerated so um so it you really do need time for that story to to play out and to really understand it and because this is this type of thing is still going on i mean there are lots of innocent people that are sitting in prison for a lot of things and um, and it's because of failures of the justice system and law enforcement and we need to raise awareness for that I think and this is a, a great place to start to just get yourself a little bit informed about the types of of things techniques tactics whatever that they use to just railroad people. But like I said, after you watch that, then watch A Wrinkle in Time, which is also still on Netflix until November. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, we did get a trailer this week for Black Christmas, speaking of female filmmakers. Uh, Kristen, I think that you have a little bit of a connection to this movie, don't you? You're friends with one of the people involved. I've met April Wolf once. Um, oh, I thought you guys were buds. I mean, I guess we're buds. I'd like to think that we're buds. We've basically <laughs> met once. We, Karen and me and, and her were at an event once. So, I mean, we've been in each other's presence twice. Um, so I think, I think we're buds. April would say we're buds. I'm going to say we're buds. <laughs> um, so, well, and if anybody remembers, I actually interviewed this film's director, Sophia Sakal, on Citizen Dame. Yes. So, yeah, the interview is, is up there. Um, it was before she had announced this, so I didn't get to be cool and ask questions about it. But, um, yeah. Well, okay, so Black Christmas, this is a remake of the 1974 movie. It's a horror film. It's set at Christmas time. I mean, who doesn't want a horror film set at Christmas time? Those are awesome. And um, 
the basic premise of this is a group of students are stalked by a stranger during their Christmas break. And yes, it was directed by Sophia Tikal, written by Sophia Tikal and April Wolf. And it stars Carrie Elwes, Imogene Poots, Brittany O'Grady, I'm not familiar with, Elise Shannon. There's a few people that I'm like, oh, I haven't heard of these people. I can't wait for them to be stars. Uh, what'd you guys think of the trailer? Um, I mean, I have very limited knowledge of the previous films. I've seen both this and the horrifically unwatchable remake they did in, like, what, 05? With, like, every CW star. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't have the... I've watched the original Black Christmas a couple of times, and I have the love for it that most people do. Maybe I'm watching it with the wrong people. I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm definitely into this one. Uh, it looks, it looks suspenseful. Um, it looks like something that I would enjoy and we need more women directing horror. I mean, it was a huge thing in the, in the eighties for female filmmakers and horror that we've kind of shied away from that I'm happy to see return. Lauren? Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm with Kristen. I don't, I don't have a strong creature feeling for the original film. Uh, I, I know that a number of people have objected to uh to the fact that at least the way that the trailer makes it look is that the the female victims fight back and they fight back in very intense and and violent ways and it looks like that this is going to kind of draw out the toxic masculine nature of slasher films in general um which certainly the original can be accused of that and and really kind of turn the tables on it a little bit. I'm fa I, I'm with Kristen though. I'm just fascinated every time it, we have a female filmmaker and a female writer uh, or female writers working on a horror film, because I think that female horror in general is so interesting and sometimes, and sometimes it's about bending genre. And I think that that's what this film is probably going to do. And sometimes it's just about showing terror, show, showing like what, what the female experience is of horror films because it's it's always one of those issues where there are a lot of female fans of horror and I'm, I'm certainly one of them but there's always that sense that you have to particularly with certain films is that you have to distance yourself from it to a degree because the violence is very much focused on treating women as passive victims that then and then you have the final girl usually who escapes, but that the the enjoyment of it is watching female bodies being mutilated, and that's can be very difficult. So whenever we move towards like women kind of gaining control of the camera, gaining control of the narrative, I'm always interested to see what they're going to do. So I, I'm more willing to go along with this film than a lot of people, I think. <laughs> I mean, the trailer gave me a little pause because it seems to be alluding to a bit of a spoiler it seems to imply there's some sort of like ritualized initiation thing going on yeah with fraternity um which honestly as we've seen with stuff like ready or not this year and satanic panic i'm down for movies that have pretty much said that like men have been selling their soul to satan that's the only way they've maintained their power they are evil Pretty much, yeah. Uh, one of my... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of my first thoughts when I was watching the trailer was, oh, look, Jason Bloom finally found a female director to work with. Good for him. He finally found one that exists. So, Just one. Yeah. Just one. <laughs> yep, only one. But uh, no, I think it looks like a lot of fun. I think it 
looks like it fits into the Blumhouse aesthetic very well. And I'm excited for it. I'm always, like you guys said, I mean, I'm always excited for a horror movie, especially from a female perspective of storytelling. So I I think it's going to be, it definitely looks like it's not a disaster. And that's, you know, sometimes with a horror movie, that's all I want is for it not to be a disaster. (laughs) Unless it's a really brilliant disaster, because sometimes those are really fun too. Mm -hmm. Hashtag go see Serenity. (laughs) (laughs) No, go see Replicas. Replicas is the most awful, wonderful movie of the year, and it has Keanu Reeves in it. So I need there you to go. See that. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other trailers that came out this week? That was the only real one of note, I think. Um, but Lauren, you went and saw It Chapter Two, and you have some thoughts. Yeah, we talked about this. We talked about this a bit last week, but I, I actually did get to see it this week with with all the normies with all the normal people who have to go to the movie theater in order to see these movies uh i liked it i did not love it i i think that many of the criticisms that i've seen of it are pretty fair uh although there are a number of places where people have criticized it for not being a horror film and i'm like i don't know what you want then because it seemed pretty horrible to me um, like I think that the horror elements of it are, are actually incredibly well done, and they, and it does it does kind of hit some of the same beats that the original film did, which I sort of expected. It's very much of a piece, um, but I think that it was very effective. And Bill Skarsgård is terrifying, and I if, if possible, he's more terrifying because he's nastier. Pennywise like gets meaner, uh, mm-hmm. which I didn't fully expect but i thought i thought it was great there's one scene him under the bleachers uh at the baseball game was truly i think one i one of the best like just horrors scenes of horror uh and the tension was so well built and his behavior and his responses and the child's responses and all that is just so well done and and he gives a, a fantastic performance um i'm kind of I think that many of the issues that the film has, and I think you mentioned this last week, Karen, was that uh, are the the issues that the book has, and yeah. there are things that, and there are some things that they've kind of removed or that they've whittled down or they've kind of compressed, but there are problems just with the overall narrative arc of the book and with some of the resolutions that the characters get that are kind of baked into it. You can't you can't make the story itself you can't really make a film of it that's an adaptation and not have that uh and so there were some issues that i had i had issues with bev's arc um i i always have issues with the woman as prize basically and i think that she was still treated like that even though they gave her good characterization um bill Hader though is great like i knew that bill Hader was a good actor but i did not realize that he would like actually make me feel very emotional and a lot of complex emotions. I think that, that his, his character arc is, is really well done. Um, one of the issues that I had and I was talking with someone yesterday about was that there's, there's definitely a disconnect between the first film and the second one. And there's almost a retconning going on in places that I, the more that I thought about it, the more bothered by it I became because there are, el- there are character elements that, are there in the in the first film and that then get kind of switched around in the second one without much 
explanation, you know, without, and I think that amazingly enough, if they had developed some of the characterizations of the adults a little bit more, it would have made more sense to connect them with their, their childhood figures in the original film. Uh, that being said, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it's a load of fun. Um, I, there are very, some very scary moments. There's some very funny moments. Uh, you know, I'm perfectly happy with the way that it all got resolved. I, I don't have major complaints about the film. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Now, Kristen, you weren't here when I talked about it last week, and I know that you have a very different opinion, so... Um, I I didn't like it. I was disappointed. I wanted it to be better because I love the first one so much, um, and I just... Hey, the minute my friend told me it was almost three hours, which I did not know going in, I was like, wait, what? Like, literally, we were standing outside the theater when she told me. I was like, oh, crap. Um, and, and that might not have necessarily bothered me so much, but it felt like, as, as Lauren mentioned, there's this belief that you didn't watch the first movie because they, they do change up one key element that they could have just done in the first film but they didn't for reasons and then they go back to it in this movie and I was just like you know why um there were some actors that felt like they completely inhabited the movie that it was going for Bill Hader James Ransom are the best Mm -hmm. they're MVPs of this movie and then you have some actors that just feel like they don't really know what they're doing there McAvoy was the one I kept saying, does he know what movie he's in? Because his character is just all over the board because he's supposed to be Stephen King. I get that. Um, you know, Jay Chaz, I felt, was was just there to be the girl. Um, and then the the hot guy is just there to be hot and show his abs. Um, so I had, I had some issues with character. And, and ultimately, I had issues with the horror because I think what made the first movie so well done is that... It is shorter, so those Pennywise sequences feel just right. You know, he's not there enough to be oppressive, but he's not spaced out enough that you forget that he's there. There were moments where it just felt like this was not his movie, and he was just ancillary to these really heavily CGI'd um, other creatures that spend far more screen time. Um, and then the worst thing, I ha- I hated the de-aging. Um, the de-aging of the, yeah. the child because it I was just there's so many flashbacks I was like okay if you wanted to make a movie with the the younger actors just do it after you made the first one um I know you had to film the second half but it really seems like you wanted to make another movie with the younger stars because so much of this movie is flashback um and they de-age them and it's not just that they de-age them which is very weird like, we're in uncanny valley territory with some of the ways that they move. But in certain actors, you could tell that they also manipulated voice to make them sound like they hadn't hit puberty. Jack Dylan Grazier especially felt chipmunky um, because it was it sounded like they had manipulated his voice. So it just was a movie where I felt like they were, like it had been focus grouped to death, trying to please all comers trying to hit all the points of the book, realizing that most Stephen King movies have terrible endings, and they were like, how are we going to do that? <laughs> um, and I think that this is a film credited specifically to Gary Doberman, who was just one of a couple screenwriters in the first film, and they did use a lot of Carrie Fukunaga's script in the first film. 
And I'm wondering how much of what made it great the first go-round was Carrie Fukunaga's voice, which mm-hmm. is not here. Um, so I thought it was a, a, a disappointing send-off. Um, but, you know, people will go see, the fans will go see it. Um, just go in with, with some tempered expectations. Reminder that I liked it a lot. <laughs> yes. I actually, you know, funnily enough, I actually really liked McAvoy. Um, and I know that he's been a complaint of a lot of people. So, like, I, I'm an outlier in this sense. But I, I actually liked the, the things that he... I'm not entirely convinced that he is that boy grown up. Some of the others, I was much more like you're saying, Bill, yes. Bill Hader and, and Ransom. I, I was like, yeah, these are those kids older like that i can see the trajectory i see how those kids become these adults mcavoy is like does he though i'm not certain whether he does but i liked his performance in itself uh and uh, kind of the same thing with whoever the guy is who plays ben i was just like you know you were such an interesting little boy and then you grew up and you lost some weight and you got really fucking boring like I, I kept telling my mom, I was all I didn't know Josh Brolin from two thousand two had been cloned. Nice. <laughs> uh, I did like Isaiah Mustafa. Yes, I think he was, he was good. good. He was good. And, and I, his I, character, I. Oh, go on, Lauren. No, 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 go on. I was gonna say his character is the the issue that I had the retconning. Yeah. You know, because the first film they had taken his plot line and given it to Ben which it's not that way in the book. And so in the second movie, they give him, you know, it's not a spoiler. I don't, I wouldn't call it a spoiler, but Mike is the town librarian. Mm-hmm. He's the historian. And that's not his plot in the first film. And I was like, then why didn't they just fucking make it his plot in the first film? Because I was sitting there and as soon as it starts in the second movie, I was like, wait, no, I need to know what his career path was like. Like he had no interest in history or any of that. Why, why transition it? That was but, the one that just felt like narrative convenience. Yeah. But the thing is, and I know that there had been rumors about what they were going to do with Mike Hanlon for the second movie, but the thing is that in the book, Mike wasn't the one doing all the research and stuff. There wasn't, like, when they were children, there wasn't this, like, the only reason you you knew that he was going to grow up to be the librarian is because the book interweaves their stories from the beginning. And so you see them as adults and as kids all along there's not a part one children part two grown-ups so that's i think that's that's why but so it was like when i heard those things in the first movie and people were saying like oh why is ben doing all the research i'm like because when they were kids that's kind of more how it played out all i know is i'm happy that andy muschietti didn't get his idea of making mike a crack addict in this movie. yeah oh absolutely <laughs> yeah and I don't know where that came from, and I don't know if that was ever a real idea or if it was just flo- something they were floating out there. I'm glad they did not go down that road. I it's also possible it I was. I think it came from. Well, I think it's possible it was a misunderstanding of some things that do happen with Mike in this movie, and it was a mischaracterization of part of his journey. Without getting too much into spoilers, but, um, but yeah, I I I just want to say I went to the SAG screening of it chapter two a couple weeks ago and which was an interesting experience but afterwards they had a Q&A this is just a fun th- I didn't learn anything from the movie <laughs> but it was just a fun time because Bill Hader Isaiah Mustafa James Ranson and Andy Bean were all there Andy Bean plays the grown-up Stanley and uh 
And so the four of them were there, and there was a moderator from EW, and every time he would try to answer or ask a question, they just could not have cared less about his questions. They were barely answering anything. They were just laughing so hysterically. They were having a good old time, and they were just like, yeah, we kept getting in trouble on set, because this is just how it was the whole time we were filming. <laughs> and it just seeing the the joy and the friendship emerge between these guys, it's it's really great. Plus, it was fun watching Bill Hader like tell the moderators some of his questions were kind of dumb. <laughs> Not in so many words, but like there was one question was, "What was it like working with Andy Muschietti as a director?" Great. So anyway, there was this one day. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, what's uh, so okay? So uh, it chapter two is now in theaters. Yay! Go see it unless you're like Kristen and hate happy things. <laughs> Um, is it a happy thing? <laughs> that, well, that's a question there, isn't it? <laughs> that's, we'll leave that up to tweet at us and let us know if you think it is a happy thing. <laughs> um, but before we wrap up, Kristen, you had just something you wanted to, to say. Yeah, so I'm sure people have been curious about where I've been. I mentioned taking a, like a month off which ended up being several months. Um, so it's just with my schedule and all the things that I do both for quote unquote fun and, and for work, it's just been very hard for me to commit um, to a regular recording schedule. So much like our, our fellow departed uh, Dame Kimberly Pierce, um, I'm going to be taking a, a bit of an intern, well, I, I'm going to be coming on with less frequency, um, so I can't guarantee that's going to be once a month. That might be, you know, once once every couple months uh, when, when you know, Kim and, or when Karen and Laura need me. Um, so I'm going to be taking a, a step back, trying to uh, get the numerous projects that I invest myself in under control. Um, and I didn't want people to think that, like, I was just popping in and out like Citizen Dame was Citizen Hotel. Oh my god, that's an idea. We should consider opening a hotel. <laughs> future idea. Future idea. Chris, um, Kristen, I don't have time. Let us open a hotel. <laughs> yes. See, this is how my mind works, okay? So when I come back on, I will have a hotel open. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I just, I wanted people to know that, yeah, I, I was going to be taking, taking a step back, putting the show firmly in the hands of Karen Peterson, who I trust will be doing an awesome job uh, as as the de facto leader, and uh, it's not as Kim said, it's not goodbye. I will I will be uh, supporting the show, and I'll be on whenever the dames need me. Uh, it's just I I know that if I keep being on something, but because I feel obligated, you know, no, nobody none of us want this to feel like work. Um, and I don't want this to be work because I feel that that ruins the conversation. So uh, I'd rather, you know, be on less and be more engaged than be on all the time and just be out of it. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be take it, passing the reins over to Karen. And I know she'll be awesome. And I'll be back on uh, whenever my schedule allows me to. Thank you, Kristen. Um, just so everyone knows, Lauren and I are we've got some big plans we're excited for for what's coming up in the next couple of months mm -hmm. there's some some big stuff in the works so this show is definitely not going anywhere and lauren and yeah. i are ready to to continue the fight for 
why men suck and women should run everything. Yes. And I do want to throw out, I will be on the website. Uh, the, the dames still let me post post reviews. So I will be, uh, I have a review up of the new Harvey Weinstein documentary that's on Hulu. I'll have a review of the, the chaperone. So I'll be, I'll be around. Um, I just won't be hounding them with ideas at, you know, seven in the morning being like, we should do this. Have we ever thought about actually starting a dog hospital? Um, you know, things like that. Future idea, Citizen Dame Dog Hospital. Huh. Huh. Okay, yeah, we'll let you do that with all your millions of dollars <laughs> from the hotel. Yes. Anyway, so, well, that's going to close out our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate, we always appreciate your support. And uh, there's lots of ways that, that you can continue to do that for us. So uh, the show, you can follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts and Podbean and Stitcher and all kinds of places. Wherever you do listen, if you could just throw us a rating, especially if you listen through Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a rating and, and um, let people know why you love listening to our show. That really does help us out. I know we haven't asked for that in a while um, but it's it's a big thing, and it's how people are able to to find the show because it it affects the algorithms and all that stuff. So, um, but you can also we love feedback, we love reactions, so and we love questions. You can always send those our way. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. We occasionally still wander over to Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/CitizenDame. You can send us an email if you don't want it to be so public, and that is CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. And uh, we have some ways that you can support us with your dollars if you feel so inclined. Our Patreon, we have some great stuff there, some bonus content. We have some more bonus content that will be coming over the next couple of weeks and months. And that is patreon.com slash citizendame. The website that Kristen was talking about, that is citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews, we have... Uh, all kinds of great stuff. Lauren has been doing an awesome job with Damestruck and and taking a real journey into classic films. And then, of course, Kristen and I and, and Lauren, we all do uh, some reviews of current stuff, too. Um, and we also, let's see, there's other ways that you can support us. We do have a Zazzle store with some fun merch. That's Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame. And if you don't want to buy anything and you don't want to make a commitment to us that's okay but you still want to throw us a couple of bucks we do have a ko-fi account that's ko-ko-fi.com slash citizen dame and you can find us individually Kristen, where are you i am on twitter at journeys underscore film and lauren i am at lh business and i am at karen m peterson so as always thank you so much and we'll talk to you soon 27 years, I dreamt of you. I missed you. We didn't stop it. I missed you.